The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to read from Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. Okay, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know why we're doing this. This is because this is the complete scene that Mark is giving us here, these two Sabbath controversies. I want to read them together, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Mark chapter 2, verse 23, Mark writes that one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Pray. Jesus, we. We saw last week that we are not so terribly different than these Pharisees. We saw last week how easy it is for us to take your commands and to legalize them in our own hearts and in our own practice. To somehow try to define your desires for us in terms of these external things that we do with our hands and feet as if that's all you're really interested in. And so, Lord, today, as we begin to work through these two scenes here that have been grouped together by Mark around this wrong view of the Sabbath, will you reveal to us our own wrong understandings, our wrong understanding of you, our wrong understanding of ourselves, our wrong understanding of your commands and how it is that you expect us to live Lord, that's nothing I can do, so this is your Spirit's doing, and I ask that your Spirit be active here this morning in revealing our hearts to us. Lord, please speak through me. May you fill me with your Spirit, and my words are nothing, these notes are nothing, but your Word is powerful, and so Lord, please make that preeminent today. God, help us to see you for who you really are and to rejoice, rejoice in that and what you've done for us in Jesus. And so we thank you for this time in your Word. Please speak to us, we ask in your name. Amen. We spent, uh, if you weren't here, the entirety of last Sunday's message trying to get just a basic, big picture understanding of uh, the first century Jewish view of the Sabbath. And please note how I describe that as first century Jewish, meaning I'm not looking at a modern view of the Sabbath. If you've got any 
uh, Jewish friends today. I really don't know how they would differ or, or be similar to things we talked about last week. So it's first century is what I'm focused on, and it is the Jewish view, not, not the way that the Romans and the Greeks around them saw the Sabbath, but the way they themselves saw it. We were trying to get this big picture understanding, and if, and if you weren't here for that, and even if you were, I want to review it all with you relatively quickly here so that you can remember where we were, remember what we saw, and be able to pick up today in, in here in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, there were two main cultural identity markers of being Jewish in the first century. Do you remember what those two things were? Number one was the Sabbath. Very good. And number two was what? Circumcision. If, if you were Jewish in the first century, the two ways that you would show to the world or indicate to the world that you were different than all of the heathen nations around you was that you observed this ritual of circumcision and that you observed the Sabbath day. This would set you apart from everyone else. And as you can think about that in terms of Old Testament stories you've heard or even New Testament stories that you've heard, you can hear them probably saying, we're not like the uncircumcised heathen, the uncircumcised Philistines. They, they saw that act alone as being an identity marker of what it meant to be Jewish versus not Jewish. And in a similar way, they viewed the Sabbath and the observance of the Sabbath that way as well. Keeping the Sabbath was a huge deal for them. Huge, capital H, capital U, capital G, capital E. But, but that presents a problem for us because when we come to passages like this one here in Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3, we don't really understand the Sabbath in the same way they, that they did. And so when we read it, we don't, we don't get the same import the same meaning, the same point that the original readers would have gotten. Oh, we think we understand it, but I'm telling you, in the end, you probably do not understand it in the same way that they did. And so to help us with that last week, I just took all of last Sunday, and I tried to ask and answer a handful of questions that I thought would give us just that real high-level, basic understanding of their view of the Sabbath so that we could really get what's going on here in these scenes. I asked four questions. Question number one was, what is the Sabbath? And I gave you a super simplistic answer that I'm sure everyone in here probably would have gotten right if it was a multiple-choice question, that the Sabbath was nothing more than God's prescribed day of rest for man. And you're all like, yeah, I got that. I know it. Good. Good with that one. Well, number two then when is the Sabbath day, I asked. And, and class, can you answer that for me? When was the Sabbath day? When did it start? But 50% of you are wrong, and the rest of you were mostly wrong, and then a couple of you were right. Very good. It started Friday night at sunset or sundown. Very good. And ended... At sunset or sundown. Very good. Okay, it's Friday night to Saturday night because that's the Jewish way of counting days. It begins at sunset, not at midnight. That's weird to us. We don't get it. But that's when their Sabbath began. And I pointed out, and I will point it out again, that that means that today is the Sabbath or not the Sabbath. A or B, which one is it? B, it is not the Sabbath. Thank you. I, I, I'm going to tell a story. I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I'm going to. Hope I'm good with this. I mean no disrespect, none whatsoever. But after the service last week, we had had a visitor here who's not here today. So <laughs> I can say it. Uh, we had a visitor last week who came up to me after the service and said, 
man, I'm really glad you preached that. People need to understand the Sabbath correctly. And I'm like, oh, well, thank you. Thank you for your encouragement, whatever. And they're like, yeah, when, when I was growing up, I, we taught our kids that, that Sunday is a day you can't work. And he keeps talking, and I'm going, I don't think you understood what I was saying. And so we went back through it, and I realized in the course of the conversation, again, that this concept that so many of us bring to Sundays, that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, it's so ingrained in our minds, so ingrained in our lives, that even when you hear someone stand up and say, Sunday is not the Sabbath day, you walk out and you think, oh, Sunday's still the Sabbath day. And I'm like, no, no, no. I mean no disrespect. I mean, I really sincerely mean no disrespect. My point is simply that this isn't the Sabbath day. The early church never thought of it that way. They called it what? Do you remember? The Lord's Day, very good. And they saw a distinction in those things. I just want to make sure that's clear. Number three, I asked, where did the Sabbath come from? Where did the Sabbath come from? Well, I gave you two answers. One, it came from creation, right? That there at the end of the creation story in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, God sets apart the seventh day as holy because on that day he rested. And this is established for for humanity for the rest of time, though we'll talk about that, I think, more next week, even what that means. But eventually it's codified in the law in the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, where God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you can labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you don't do any work, and your sons don't do any work, and your daughters don't do any work, and your servants don't do any work, and your animals can't do any work, and everyone who's in town visiting can't do any work. You get it? You can't work. That's, that's in, the, in the fourth commandment, in the law. And so Israel understood that in order to keep the Sabbath day holy, set apart unto God, It was a day where they were not allowed to work, which led us to our fourth and final question, what's work? Which is kind of an important question if you understand that in the law, violating this commandment can be punishable by death. And so if I don't want to die, I need to obey this command about not working. So so what what exactly is work? I don't want to do it. Whatever work is, I want to stay away from work so that I don't have to, you know, get, get put to death here. And, and as you look through the Old Testament, I noted, and you go through all the law and you go through the rest of the Old Testament, you realize that that question is never actually answered in the Old Testament. Never answered. God never gives us a list of these eight things are work and these ten things aren't work or whatever you want to how you picture it. There's no appendix in the back of your Bible after the maps that tells you what is and is not work. God never answers that question. And so what happened over time is that the religious leaders of Israel had established this entire subcode. Okay, So the law is up here and they built this subcode where they had identified 39 different things that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. These 39 things defined work. Do you remember this list? Pretty long. It's interesting enough. And and, and unless you begin to think wrongly about this list, remember, please, please remember this, that its original purpose was to help people obey God's word. They're they're not simply just making the list for the sake of of trying to put burdens on people, not initially at least. The list is there to help you obey God's word. That's its original purpose. But 
in time, that began to change. Because as you can see in these things, if you can read them from the distance you're at, th these are just broad categories. Broad categories of ideas that you are or are not allowed to do. And so a secondary system had developed where people had come to the priests or the rabbis and say, okay, I see it says I can't do this, this category, but what about this very specific thing? Can I do this very specific thing? Is that violating this? And so the priests had developed this entire case law where they had gone through question after question, issue after issue about what things actually constituted violation of these 39 prohibitions. Can you pick up your child if he or she is crying? Is that acceptable? Well, this list says transporting objects is a violation of work, and if you pick up your child, that can be transporting. And so is that a violation of, of this work requirement? Can you dig someone out of a collapsed house? If their house falls down on them and they're covered in rubble, can you, can you destroy a house? Can you demolish a house in order to dig them out? How many steps can you take on a Sabbath? I mean, is one step good? 10 steps, 20 steps, 100 steps, 1,000 steps? I think the answer to that one was they agreed to 1,999 were acceptable. I don't know if they have pedometers they wore like on their belt or something to keep up with that. Whatever. Can, can you warm up dinner? Is that acceptable on the Sabbath? I mean, you can't start a fire, nor can you extinguish one, but if there's a fire already going, could you take advantage of the fire and warm up your dinner? Can you help someone with an injury or illness? We, we, we hear these things, and we think, why would you ever want to live like that? I, I, just from our modern mindset, we, we kind of recoil at those sorts of ideas, those sorts of questions, but what I'm saying to you, if you ask that question of why would you live like this, then you prove my point that I made at the beginning. You don't really get their understanding of the Sabbath. Because to them, it's like, why would you not live like this? I mean, I don't want to violate God's law so that he has to put me to death. And the way to not do that is to follow this, which is an interpretation of this, which is trying to help me obey the command of don't work. You get it? You follow the progression there? So, of course, I'm going to ask these questions. Of course, I'm going to live this way. And, and, and Jesus is going to confront this kind of thinking, which is, is permeated his culture when, he, when he's there. He's going to confront this kind of thinking over and over and over again throughout his ministry. That's why the Sabbath day is going to be the number one day on which he gets in trouble, right? Okay, no day greater than this. This is going to be his number one trouble day. And that's why I said that last week that this fourth and final controversy that we've seen here in this that we have looked at here in the scene, these set of scenes, has to do with the wrong understanding of the cultural identity of Jesus. The people around him, particularly the Pharisees, expect that he will live up to this kind of cult cultural system that has developed around the Sabbath, really around all of the law for that matter. They think he's going to live up to this, but Jesus is going to show them that this entire system, not just with the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is what's on display today, but this entire system of thinking is actually built on a wrong view of God, of God's commands, and of man as well, okay? These three things. And so let me show you this here in these two scenes, and hopefully by the time we're done, you'll understand what Jesus is really trying to get at. Let's look at scene number one first. Mark, Mark sets up scene number one by noting 
that one Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields. And just to point out a quick little detail of Mark here. Mark is really unconcerned with chronology at this point, just so you understand this. Mark, I, I don't really know when this event happens, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of record it in different places. But Mark's not trying to say it happened after the last event. He just throws it out there. One Sabbath. This one Sabbath, this is a story that happened because he's trying to make a larger point here. So, so he gives us this scene, and he's grouping it together with other scenes that will illustrate the points he's wanting to make. And I want you to understand that so we're clear. But it's the Sabbath day, he says, and they're walking through some grain fields. And as they go, the disciples begin to pluck some heads of grain. Can you picture this? Have you ever seen grain growing? Jamie and I, uh, well, I took credit. Jamie planted some winter wheat last season a little bed of it in our garden, and so it's wheat, right? It's growing up, it gets grew about this tall, probably, it's, it's not very big, and it's beautiful, right? Golden, like thistly on top, the little, I don't know what they're called, little needle-like things coming off of it, and inside are all the, the, the wheat berries that are there, and so they're walking through a field of this kind of thing, and they're, they're grabbing off the top with the, the wheat berries in their hand, and the Pharisees, who are for some un- unknown reason nearby, see this and say, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Which makes me wonder, are the Pharisees following Jesus around? Or were they like camped out around town trying to catch him in something? I don't know, but they see this. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And this here is the controversy. Now, let's clarify just quickly what is and is not the problem here in this scene. Note that the problem here is not that they are stealing from the farmer, okay? Unless you think that could be part of the issue here, it's not. Because in the law, God had made provision for people who were growing crops to allow folks to come through who are hungry to just eat. So if you're walking along and you're hungry and there's an apple tree there and it's not your land, it's perfectly okay to take an apple and to eat an apple as you go. It's not okay to come in and take every apple and go sell them in the marketplace, okay? At that point, it becomes stealing. But, but in terms of how God had designed their system, what the, what the disciples are doing here is completely fine. They're hungry, there's food, they are welcome to take some and eat it. So, so the problem isn't that they're stealing. The problem also is not that God had prohibited plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. It's not the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath. That, it's not there. So there's nothing in, in terms of God's law, in terms of God's commands, that they are violating here in this scene. No, the problem here is that the disciples have violated one of these 39 prohibited activities that were agreed upon by the Pharisees. Can you guess which one it is? They're reaping. See that little yellow word up there? They're reaping. Because as they go through and they're taking off heads of grain, that's exactly what you do when you reap or harvest your field. And though Mark doesn't point it out here, they're probably also guilty of threshing and winnowing because then you can't just eat a head of grain. That would hurt (laughs) a head of grain. You have to take the thing and rub it in your hands to break the wheat berries out and then throw away the the, the casing, the pod, and then eat the berries. So they're, they're probably actually breaking multiple requirements, excuse me, prohibitions here by the Pharisees. And so the fair, in the Pharisees' minds, they're, they're guilty of a number of infractions against the traditions of the fathers. You ever heard that phrase before? The traditions of the fathers. Jesus talks about this throughout the Gospels. That's just another way of referring to all that code 
that code that they had built in about what you could and could not do. And as you can see in their question here, their accusation here, they make absolutely no distinction between their traditions and God's actual commands. None. If you violate their traditions in their mind, what have you actually violated? The law. Why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? They're referencing God's law, even though they haven't done anything in relation to the law. In their minds, there's no distinction between their traditions and and, and the law because as they see it, their traditions are the only right understanding and application and interpretation of God's law. And so to break one of those is the same as breaking God's commands. This This is the problem in scene one. You got it? Now, hold that thought. Go over to scene number two now, chapter three. We're going to kind of break this up, go back and forth between the two. Because I want you to see the problem here as well. Mark notes there, chapter 3, verse 1, that this scene occurs on a different Sabbath. Okay, it's again, there's another Sabbath going on. And in this Sabbath, Jesus is in a synagogue somewhere. And there in the crowd is a man with a withered hand. And whenever I read the story, it always takes me back to my college days. When I, my freshman year of college, I worked cleaning crew. Um, it was a pretty big school, and, and I was on the team that helped clean the student center. I was the upstairs bathroom guy. That was my title, upstairs bathroom guy. So I'm, I'm the upstairs bathroom guy, and our crew leader, was this, he was this awesome guy, great, great guy, junior, senior, he was a lot older than me, and he had a withered hand. Have you seen people who have been born with, with a disability or deformity where from here down his arm was normal size, but once it got to about his elbow, it was about probably 50% of the size it was supposed to be, and it was kind of deformed and twisted up like this. And great guy, I love that guy to death. This is he's what I picture here. I picture a man that's sitting there in a synagogue. He's got a he's got a withered hand, and and Mark tells us here in the story that they were watching Jesus to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath. And why are they watching him? So that they can accuse him. And if you don't know who the they are here, Luke tells us that the they is the scribes and Pharisees. He he fills that in for us. They're in the synagogue here with Jesus, and they're obviously cognizant of the fact that the man is here. They know he's there, and they're specifically wondering, what's Jesus going to do? What's he going to do with this guy? Is he going to heal him? He's healed on other Sabbaths. Is he going to do it again here? And, And they're doing this because they want to accuse him. And note that in this scene, different than the first one, Jesus brings the fight to them. He calls the man to himself, and then he poses a question to them, to the scribes and Pharisees. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? In other words, he says to the Pharisees, is is it okay for me to heal this man on the Sabbath or not? See, the view of the Pharisees was that in Jesus' day that healing on the Sabbath is wrong unless... We're talking about some kind of mortal illness or injury. If your life isn't in danger, you can wait. If your life is in danger, well, we'll heal you. But but if if it's not, well, you're just going to have to suffer it out until tomorrow. And and just so you know, just for interest's sake, this ruling about healing isn't based on any one category here in this list of 39. It's actually based on multiple categories. I mean, for example, if someone is sick and... You know, maybe they've got a fever, maybe they're stomach bugs, something like that, and 
you've got a little thing you could grind up to make for them that would make their stomach better, well, guess what that would do? That would violate this command against grinding. Or let's say that, that you have cut yourself and you need to have the wound bound up. Well, that might violate the tying or the sewing prohibition. Or maybe uh, you've broken your arm and you need a splint. That might violate the building prohibition. So, so healing in general, as you can see, could involve multiple of these categories, which is why in Jesus' day, if you weren't, uh, your life wasn't in danger, healing's pretty much forbidden. It's out of the question. You just let the person suffer until the next day. But that's the problem here in this scene, isn't it? The man's life isn't in danger. He has a withered hand. He's probably had it for some time. It's been there since who knows when, maybe since birth. It's definitely going to be there tomorrow when it's not the Sabbath. And so in the minds of the Pharisees, to heal a condition like this on the Sabbath day is to break the law. And when Jesus asked them this question, you know, is it right to do this or not? Mark notes here that they were silent, silent. And clearly by this point in Jesus' ministry, whenever uh, you see this happen, they're, they're not, unlike, excuse me, other times in his ministry, they're not here this time to debate the merits of Sabbath observance with him. No, no, no. They know what he's going to do. That's why they've come. They are here simply to gather more evidence so that they can accuse him, and they give no answer to his question. Now, these are the controversies, okay? The first one is, is that he's gonna, the disciples are going to eat, on the Sabbath, the second one that he's going to heal on the Sabbath. Do you, do you see what's going on? Do you understand the problems and how they viewed it? Now, let's look at his response to both of these scenes. In scene number one, after they asked him why his disciples did what was not lawful on the Sabbath, Jesus turns to an Old Testament example. In verse 25, he says, Have you never read what David did? John, okay. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Why does Jesus turn to this particular example? It's, it's a reference, if you don't know, to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. And in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6, David is on the run. The, the chapter prior, Jonathan has come to him and he shot the arrows. Remember that scene? And he told David, look. My father is looking to kill you. You need to take off. You need to run. You need to run now. And so in chapter 21, verse 1, David does that. He takes off. He and the men who are loyal to him. And as they're going, they're in need of food and weapons. And so he stops at the tabernacle, and he asks the priest who's on duty if he has anything to eat. And, and let's be clear on something. If you turn to the 1 Samuel 21 passage, which you don't have to do now, but you, you can if you want to, you're going to see that David lies to the priest. He, he goes up to the priest and he says, look, hey, I'm on a secret mission from King Saul. And he sent us away in haste and we were in such a hurry to do what Saul wanted, we didn't have time to grab any food. Do you have food? And the priest hears this and he believes that David is on a mission from Saul, God's anointed king. And so he gives him food. But but it's not just any food that he gives him. No, it's this food that's referred to here as the bread of the presence, which is bread that has been specifically presented to God. It's placed out on a table there inside the tabernacle, and it's considered holy. It's bread that only a priest can eat, according to the law. 
But, but the priest must be thinking here, well, since he's serving the king, since he's serving God's anointed, it's permissible for me to give this to him. I, I need to do this. I need to help him in fulfilling this need. And so fulfilling a need for someone who is serving God's anointed in this priest's mind trumps the prohibition about only priests being able to eat it. Do you follow that train of thought? And, and this is what Jesus points to here in his response to the Pharisees. I am God's anointed. I'm the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one from God. My disciples are living their lives in service to me. And if it was okay for the priest to give the bread of the presence, something that's actually prohibited by the law, if it's okay for him to give the bread of the presence to someone who was serving God's anointed, then certainly it's okay for these disciples of mine to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath, something not prohibited by the law in the service of me. And Jesus drives this point home in force in verses 27 and 28, if you'll look at it. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He says to them, the Sabbath was given by God to serve man, not the other way around. Man was not made to serve the Sabbath as if it was some kind of a handcuff or shackle designed to limit man. No, no, no. It was given to bless man. The Sabbath was given to free man. It was given to serve man. And the one who's clarifying this for them is none other than the Supreme Lord the Sabbath himself. He's the one who designed it. It's his to start with. The Pharisees here had turned God's command about not working on the Sabbath into a whole system of shackles that sought to limit man, to bind man, to force man into serving God. And Jesus indicates that's not how or why you should serve God at all. That service to God is about something much more than these rules and regulations, and you'll see what that is here in just a moment. Now, go over to scene two. Look at his response there. Because after asking them there in that scene if it's lawful to do good or not do good, to do to harm or whatever on the Sabbath, to save life, to kill, and they're silent, Mark records something that is rarely seen in the Gospels. He says that Jesus looked around at them with anger. Anger grieved at their hardness of heart because he knows what they're thinking here. He knows that they would leave this man like this and this false understanding of what the Sabbath is all about and it angers him. You don't see Jesus angry very often in the Gospels, but here's one of those moments. He's angry at the way they even view this situation. Their hearts are so hard that he's grieved by it. And so he tells the man, stretch out your hand. And he doesn't do anything. He just tells the man, stretch out your hand. And as soon as the man does, his hand is restored. And, and in case you don't pick up on it here, in healing this man, Jesus answers his own question. Is it okay to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Well, according to Jesus, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's always lawful to do good on the Sabbath, no matter what. Always lawful to save life. Pharisees, Mark notes, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Those are supporters of Herod Antipas, their political party. They went out and held counsel with them about how they might destroy Jesus. How ironic is that? 
It's not okay to do good on the Sabbath. But it is okay to get together and plot someone's destruction. That's perfectly fine, you know? They're answering the question too. Is it okay to do good or to do harm? It's okay to do harm, apparently. Is it okay to save life or to kill? Apparently they think it's okay to kill on the Sabbath. And so you see that here in their response. Now, what's Mark's point here? Or more importantly, what's Jesus' point here? What's, what's really going on in this passage? Well, I'll tell you what's going on here. Jesus is exposing this culture, the whole culture. It's not just the Pharisees, it's everybody around him. He's exposing this culture's wrong view of God himself via their wrong view of God's commands. Now, now follow this with me for a moment. When they looked at God's commands about keeping the Sabbath holy by not working, they had come to see it as something that they could actually do by making and keeping a set of rules. Number one, they had reduced it to nothing more than a checklist of do's and don'ts that could be totally obeyed or violated based on the actions of one's hands or feet. That's it. You want to know what it means to follow God's commands? Here's the checklist, do and don't. It involves all this stuff here. They, they had totally externalized the law, totally externalized the command. It's all about the outward, not about the inward. Number two, then, they had come to view the command as a means by which you served God. You want to know how to serve God? Keep the commands. Okay, you get it? That's, this is how you serve God. You obey the commands. Number three, then, in that process, they had elevated observance of these things over mercy, kindness, grace, and love. It's all about the obedience. All about the obedience. All that other stuff, not as important. And these are, these are all wrong views of God's commands. They're both wrong in the understanding of the purpose of the commands in the sense that, that Jesus says, man's not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't greater than man in God's eyes. No, no, no. The Sabbath is actually made for man. It was given to man as a blessing. And if you don't see it this way, Jesus says to them, you're not getting its purpose. Number two, they were wrong in its execution because obedience isn't measured in actions only. Obedience is always measured where? In the heart. These, these are wrong views of God's commands, which... If you peel back the onion a little bit and go a little deeper, you'll see they reveal a wrong view of God himself. I think that's always the case. Wrong views of God's commands are almost always based, if not always based, on a wrong view of God. They saw God as someone who could be pleased and placated by this kind of obedience. They saw God as a list keeper of one's good and bad choices and actions. They saw God as holy and just, but apparently not as merciful and gracious. And because of those wrong views of God, they then viewed themselves incorrectly as well. They thought that they could live their life so as to please and placate God by their own actions. They saw themselves as scoring points on the good side of God's list and avoiding bad marks on the, on the other side of the list. They saw themselves, therefore, as having earned the badge of holiness and justness in God's eyes, not based on his mercy or grace, but based on their own actions or works. Does any of that sound familiar? 
this wrong view of God, which, is, which sees him as like this list keeper. Well, you do good things over here. Oh, these people do bad things. And because you understand him in that way, you're like, well, I want to be on the good side. So I'm going to pursue all this stuff. It's our culture too, is it not? In Jesus' response then, you see the right understanding and application of God's commands. Number one, God's commands aren't ultimately about the hands and feet. What are they ultimately about? They're about the heart. Think throughout the Gospels. What does Jesus do with the law? He internalizes it. You know it's been written, you can't commit adultery. I say to you, don't lust. You know it's written, you can't murder. I say to you, don't even hate. He constantly will take the law and he internalizes it on them so that they understand it's not ultimately about the hands and feet. It's about the heart. Number two, Jesus shows them that God's commands aren't the means of serving God. They're not the way in which you serve him. They're the end of serving him. They're the way you express service to him. Because the desire to serve God in the way that makes God happy comes from within and is merely shown by obedience. And if you don't understand the difference in the two where you think, well, I'll make God happy by my service. No, 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 no. You can't do that. We serve because God has made us happy already. You understand the the distinction there? Number three, Jesus shows them that love for God comes before obedience, and obedience without love is of no eternal value whatsoever. Thus, later on, and I know I'm going to end up saying this again when we get to it, but it's probably good for us to hear it more as many times as we can. A lawyer is going to come up to Jesus and say, so, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And he doesn't turn to circumcision. He definitely doesn't turn to the Sabbath. He turns to a a command that I imagine most of you in here know pretty well. The greatest commandment, he says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because in that sums up the law. And then he gives a second one, to love your neighbor as yourself. That In these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. If you did these two things, everything else would be fulfilled. Everything. And you think about these two examples. In the first one, I think about who are they worried about them offending? Who are the Pharisees worried about being offended here by the disciples' actions? It's God. And the second one, what's the issue? It's that man isn't being taken care of. Jesus, he loves God. It's okay to eat the grain. He loves man. I'm going to heal you on the Sabbath. I don't care what day it is. You see Jesus living out these things even here. And all of this is based on a right view of God, that God is pleased not by our obedience, but by our faith in the obedience and sacrifice of his son. That's what God is pleased in. That he doesn't keep lists of our good and bad actions and the goal of life is somehow to get more on one side than the other. No, no, no. He's pleased only in the obedience of his son, and he considers us righteous only because of him. That's it. There is no list. If there was a list, it's all bad for us. That's it. But what God is willing to do is consider the list of his son and to remove the list of our sins as far as the east is from the west. If you want to know about lists that God keeps, that's how he keeps them. And he, he's, he's holy and just, that's true. But he's also gracious and merciful. And all of this is of grace. By by punishing his son for our sins, he's just and the justifier, right? 
He's able to punish sin and yet forgive us. And all of this leads to a right view of ourselves as well here. We should live to please him, not to earn his favor. Our pleasing him is is merely a response to his grace. It's a response to his mercy. It's a response to his love. It's not the means by which we earn it. Thus, Paul can say in Titus chapter 2 that I should say no to ungodliness because of the grace that's been shown to me. I don't say no to ungodliness to earn the grace. I say no because of the grace. The grace is the motivating factor that leads me, teaches me to say no. Our standing, we learn also, is not based on anything in us, but in Christ alone, nothing else. And number three, our holiness and righteousness then is in Christ alone as well. You know, what's your view of God? That's ultimately what we end up at here. What's your real view of God? And you see it by understanding your view of God's commands and your view of, of yourself. Do you view God's commands, even, even these ones in the New Testament, as being shackles that bind you? I would love to do this, but the Bible says no. If, if, if you view God's commands in those ways, something is wrong in your heart, okay? It probably means that you have a wrong view. God just doesn't want me to be happy. He doesn't want me to have any fun because real fun is found in doing A, B, C, and D and God said I can't do any of them. No, God doesn't give commands to make us miserable. He gives commands to set us free. He doesn't prohibit things to make your life a drudgery. He prohibits things so that you can experience the real joy that comes from him and him alone. Same with his requirements, not just prohibitions. I really don't want to do this, but I have to because God says I have to. It's just, you don't understand God. Something's wrong even with you then. You, you need to recognize that those kinds of views of God's commands, to see them as shackles designed to limit us, it expresses a wrong view of God himself. If you see yourself as someone who can, who can somehow please God by your actions, by your choices, right or wrong, you, you don't get the gospel. God was never pleased with you, okay? (laughs) That's the beauty of it, right? He was never pleased with you. He was only ever pleased with his son. And the fact that he is pleased with you at all, because you're in his son, your faith is in his son, and you have been forgiven. It's his righteousness. Your, Your sin is as far gone as the east is from the west. That's why he's pleased in you. Not because of you. And your life then is to be lived in response to that grace. The, the, the reaction, the obedience is lived in response to all of that. What's your view of God? What's your view of his commands? What's your view of yourself? Jesus exposes that for us here and will continue to do so throughout the Gospels. And so I pray that God will open your eyes to those questions here in Mark. We bow your heads. Father, it is so easy for us to have a very wrong view of the many commands we see here in the Scripture. We want to just attack the Pharisees because they don't seem to get it. They don't understand what, uh, how the law is to be read and applied. And they added all this stuff. And we're, we sit here so smugly thinking we're better than them. In fact, we're not. We've created our own list of ways that we think we can please you. And they reflect the wrong views of you. And so... God, forgive us for all of this. I pray, Lord, that 
you will show us each and every place in our hearts and lives where we could see any of your commands in this way because they ultimately reflect some wrong view of you. You are good. You've never given us a command that wasn't for our ultimate joy and happiness. Forgive us for these hard hearts we have that, that don't see them that way. Lord, you're gracious. And, and everything we have is from your hand. And there's nothing in us that's worthy. Nothing in us that pleases you. It's only your son. Forgive us for the, the, the way we view ourselves as thinking we're somehow righteous and good enough to deserve your favor. And if there's anyone in here today, Lord, who has come in and they still see you in that way as this list keeper of good and bad, and they're just hoping that their life will match up enough good things to, to earn your favor, Lord, take this message as weak as it has been and please convict them and make them miserable until they understand you for who you are and for what you've done for them in Jesus. And so, Lord, as we go out this week, we need to live differently. We don't live differently because we're shackled to a new law. We live differently because we have been set free by grace and our lives are to be lived as a response to that. And so this week, Lord, please remind us of your grace every morning, every night. Help us to see it, to be confronted by it, to be reminded of it, to be encouraged by it. May we never walk away from your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for its power. I ask all these things in Jesus' name.